You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi, folks, and welcome to Let's Talk Photography, show number 28. I'm your host, Bart Bouchatz, and joining me today, I have, well, not really a panel. I have, it's myself and Antonio, basically, just the two of us. So, hi, Antonio. Hey, Bart. Happy, uh, Happy New Year. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it is our first, first show of the year. year. Yeah. Show of the year, yeah. Um, so, I was, I had promised in December that we would have a normal panel show in January, and then real life got in the way again. I've had some family stuff going on this month, so I figured... It's easier to arrange to record with one person than with many people. If you know, you may have to change at short notice. So for another month, I'm afraid it's it's just me and one person. And uh, no one complained last month, though, so I guess it's not awful. Uh, but anyway, so myself and Antonio are going to talk on the topic which I've decided to be very broad about, which is just new beginnings, because, well, it's New Year, so that seems like an appropriate topic. Um... So I guess the most cliched thing we could possibly talk about with that topic is New Year resolutions. And uh, I think I said in the pre-show that my New Year's resolution is to end up in a stage where I feel comfortable and basically don't hate Lightroom. Because right now I feel like I'm editing photographs with one hand tied behind my back. And it's making me exceptionally cranky. Why do you feel that? Well, in Aperture I could bring up a photo. I could see in my mind what I wanted it to be when I was done and without thinking about it I could make what was in my mind be on my screen Mm -hmm. and in Lightroom I can't it will not work Um, and particularly what I'm missing is particularly actually so if I'm doing HDRs or if I'm doing astronomy shots what I need Mm -hmm. to be able to do is to drop a dropper on to select either in the case of an HDR that horrible blue cast in shadows Mm -hmm. or in the case of an astronomy shot that horrible sodium yellow from all those streetlights we have drop a dropper on that one color and then manipulate that color and that color only by basically turning down the brightness of that color and desaturating it so that it effectively melts out of the picture, which means that your HDRs have shadows that look realistic and that your nighttime shots have skies that mm-hmm. look realistic. And that tool, which in Aperture was just a color dropper, was really straightforward. You drop an eye drop and it just works. I cannot get that functionality to work in Lightroom. Really? I think really? you can do that. <sighs> Where am I spacing out on this? I, it doesn't sound like something I do off, often, but it does sound like something that you can do in Lightroom. But, um, I, can, uh, I can do it on like the, the, the sort of the main colors of Lightroom's choosing. So I can turn down the blues and the greens, but not a specific shade of. I'll look into that and get back to you. <laughs> yeah, do please, because if, if that were gone, because the other thing on the other hand, like, you know, swings and roundabouts. Yeah. So on the, on the one hand, like, I don't like this notion of having three interfaces in one where I have to be, oh, am I now in library mode or in editing mode or in whatever the third one is? You know, in Aperture, I could mess with my metadata and mess with my image all at the same time, whereas now I have to look across the top and see which one of the buttons I'm on, which makes me a little bit cranky. But on the other hand, the, the, you know, the, the, the big change that I'm loving is the fact that I can do perspective correction non-destructively right there within you know, my editor, which it certainly couldn't do in Aperture. Right. So you're, gain, you're gaining some things and you're losing some things, or at least maybe yeah. losing some things. But uh... to, to a large extent, what I've lost is five years worth of muscle memory. So I, mm-hmm. I know that's part of why I'm cranky. And I'm just going to learn it. Because I remember the first day I used Aperture. I came from my photo to Aperture. And it was like, yeah. You know, <laughs> so well, I hate things. to throw something else into the mix. But have you looked into Capture One? 
I gave it a brief look and decided I prefer the idea of using something like Lightroom because I'm big on being organized. Yeah, well, that's the strength of Lightroom is the organization. Certainly not um, not Capture One's forte. Uh, I recently purchased the new version of it, which is Capture Nine, uh, Capture One. I think it's version nine. Mm. And because I've got a few people talking about switching over, uh, yeah. especially because I'm shooting mostly Fuji these days, and uh, Lightroom for Lightroom is just turns blue in trying to uh, uh, um, open up the uh, uh, raw files for Fuji. Oh. Meaning that uh, I literally have to go. Now, I told you in the pre-show, I have an mm. old computer, a, a 2009 early Mac, early 2009 Mac Pro. So it's a little slow mm. in general. But when I import my Nikon D7000 images, which are the same megapixels as yeah. the uh, Fuji I have... It does it in a blink of an eye. And I'm not converting right. to DNG. And uh, um, I would probably tell people to stop converting to DNG. But uh, I'll get oh. to that in a minute. Um, so it saves a step in terms of we're not conver- doing a conversion. And the D7000 pictures sort of come in, you know, like that. Yeah. Snap my finger. Uh, and the same kind of files for the Fuji file. I, I literally have to go out for lunch to, to import a card's worth of uh, – Fuji files in Lightroom. And so what I'm also doing is I'm taking the card uh, full of images. I'm, I'm transferring them first to my SSD, figuring, well, you know, my SSD right. is going to be much faster than my, uh, yeah, of my little card and the card reader. And Lightroom still just chokes on those. And so, you know, if I was going to say, if I was going to have a resolution, I don't know how this works out, but I, I want uh, Adobe to fix that by the end of the year. Or else I'm gonna dump. I'm gonna dump Lightroom because my workflow is more towards uh, Fuji these days, and I just don't have the time to sit there and, and and import them all day long. Do Fuji have a converter to DNG that you could use and then import those DNGs into Lightroom? Or I'm like- not going to convert to DNG. So okay. the reason why I said that is um, the earlier, the previous version of Capture One, which I own. Uh, could not read the DNG files. Now I'm not sure if that's a you know an issue for the people who make Capture One or it's an it's an Adobe issue. But I don't think that DNG is going to be the universal format everybody was hoping it to be. Yeah, um, I th- yeah. I think that the fact that it's owned by Adobe rather than actually being a, an open yeah. format is probably the issue there. Yeah, I mean, I think I think part of the problem is you know if the camera manufacturers would have offered the ability to shoot in DNG in the first place, that would be great and that would have all been one big happy family. But the camera manufacturers, I think, are doing their own shenanigans and want to have their own proprietary RAW files. And so, you know, we're back to this mix of, you know, 1,400 RAW files. But uh, the one – the problem I was having with the DNG is that in case I did want to move over to a different system, in this case it was Capture One version 8, I – Capture One version 8 was not reading my old DNG files. So yeah. I decided to not convert to DNG. This way I can have my library more open so that yeah. if I wanted to switch processors in any point in my workflow, uh, I would be able to and not have to go back to my original file someplace. So I, I've dropped the DNG uh, altogether. Yeah, philosophically, I love the concept of a DNG. In practical yeah. terms, I've, I've never I've never gone that route and 
probably will. Well, it's a nice package. It's all the metadata and all the processing is all encapsulated into one file. You don't have to deal with like XMP hard. files. I know we're sort of going off on a tangent here. And no, but tangents far, are but... fine. Like I say, new beginning, new <laughs> beginnings. So... I'm also snowbound, so... You know, we're recording this on the day that New York City is having, uh, you know, Snowzilla. And, uh, you mentioned is. something ridiculous like 24 inches. Oh, yeah. We're at uh, approximately 11.30 a.m. Eastern time. And I think we've already passed by 9 to 10 inches. And they're forecasting. That's ridiculous. Up That's up to 24. And so we're just we're just getting started. That's 60 <laughs> centimeters of snow. That's madness. Yeah, it's making up for all the time we hadn't have snow, you know, earlier in the winter season. Um, late in 2015, we had we actually had no snow. So this is just sort of piling up and spitting out. <laughs> I have nothing so. better to do than to go off on tangents. <laughs> well, no, but actually, so really, if we're t- going back to our topic, so my main problem, I guess, is that because Apple killed Aperture, I am being forced into a new beginning. Well, you now you're sounding like a victim. Well, no, I did, I did victim's <laughs> the wrong word, but I was quite happy where I was. Like, for in terms of a UI design, Apple Apple built Aperture in a way that my brain liked. It, mm-hmm. it, it was compatible with my personality and my preferences. And Adobe's feelings on user interface design do not align nearly so nicely with my own. I find no, their design I, like nails on a blackboard. I agree a thousand percent. When I work in when I used to work in Aperture, which I loved up until the point they stopped. Yeah, it just got bored. It. Um. And stopped adding all the cool features that Lightroom had, like lens distortion fixings and yeah. other assorted stuff. Aperture was the kind of program that made me feel – and I might have said this before on the show, so excuse me if you're hearing this again. But it made me feel like a photographer again. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. growing up in the time of film and light boxes and negatives and dark rooms. And there was – Apple had the ability to capture a feel – with that program that I never really felt like I was pushing files around. I felt like I was yeah. working on photographs. And for the life of me, Adobe cannot, Lightroom cannot capture that same experience. And I, I haven't gotten the same experience even in Photoshop. I mean, in Photoshop can be a digital darkroom. And I never got that feel. And it's intangible feeling. Um, I mean, one of the things that Aperture had that was really great was a light box sort of thing where you, mm. where if you're trying to arrange your pictures, maybe you're going to make a book or something like that. You actually could move your pictures around on this sort of virtual light table. Yeah. and I love that, yeah. I loved it too. And it made me feel like I was working with pictures. And Lightroom makes me feel like I'm, I'm managing files. And for the – frankly, lately my workflow with Lightroom really has been managing files because I do a lot of my processing on my iPad with mm. my Fuji pictures. And that to me feels more photographic, you know, because I'm touching the screen. It's a different experience than, uh, than Aperture uh, directly. But – it is a it is a feeling I'm touching the pictures with my finger and I'm doing something that feels organic, hmm. and then I'm transferring those to Lightroom so that I can organize my library and I'm I'm not doing as much processing these days at least with my Fuji um, than I than I was uh, previous with my uh, with my Nikon and stuff like that. So uh, the yes, Lightroom has that feel uh, of you know pushing files around and managing, you know, directories. And, yeah. Uh, but to like, you know, add to your resolution, you know, I'm thinking I, I'm a, I'm a Lightroom guy mm-hmm. and someone is, some friends of mine are getting me to, to look at Capture One. And there's a kicking and screaming I have with that because I load up Capture One and it looks like it's another interface I have to learn. <laughs> yeah. Now, can, 
can you go easily? So, if, uh, I mean, I, I can't imagine not having something like Lightroom or Aperture to manage my images because I really don't want to get back to the bare, bare file system. Like, I want something that right. does metadata and lets me make smart albums and all that kind of stuff. Can, is it easy to round-trip pictures out of Lightroom into Capture, uh, Capture One and then back again? Or is, uh, how does that... You know, I have not done the round-trip yet. I can imagine that you can, cause you can set up a round-trip in Lightroom for pretty much any uh, mm. processing program. I'm guessing what it's going to do is going to turn it into a TIFF. It's not going to yeah. keep it a raw file. Uh, so, you know, launching it into Capture One as a 16-bit TIFF, which can be generally a pretty good file to work with uh, anyway. It, it's a good file to work with a 16-bit TIFF, but it's it's, it's, it's not, not raw. It, well, it's not raw and it's not small. <laughs> no, it's not. But, I mean, I've got a lot of space and space is generally not an issue these days. And plus, you're only going to process a few pictures, right? So it's well, I guess that's the thing, because what if it turns out I really like Capture One, then I'm going to want to process them all. So then the other question is, is Capture One remotely capable of being that library that Aperture used to be? It's not. I, I, the library system in that, I looked at it for about five minutes, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Because in, in Capture One, you can import Lightroom libraries. Hmm. Um, so that it can – it, I don't think it maintains – it maintains some of the processing. It certainly maintains the metadata and keywords, and you can – and you can do searches and stuff like that, but the interface is not, you know, Lightroom is set up for, you know, a database looking for your pictures. Capture One yeah. is, is more heavily processing oriented yeah. uh, and less on the, uh, on the um, you know, organization thing. Uh, I don't know if they're going to work on that or not. And the thing I like about Capture One is that you can actually own it. Whereas just, you know, I mean, you can own Lightroom yeah, 6, but you don't get all the features from the... I have to say, the whole cloud thing doesn't bother me. Um, I, I quite like the idea of, you know, it's it's not that expensive for the photographer package in, in the cloud. So basically that gives you Photoshop and Lightroom, which are kind of the only two I really want anyway. And that just comes out of my PayPal every month. And it's it's actually fine because it means I never have to worry about an upgraded version. It's just I am always going to have the coolest version of those products. I go back and forth with this model. I mean, I still like the ability to own some of my software and... Uh, you know, even when I'm buying games on my iPad and it says, you know, f- you know, free, but then you have to pay to buy all these things. I really don't like that. There's something – something agree with you. It, it, at a lower level, that just doesn't sit 100% right with me. And I, and I also don't like the fact that, you know, if I don't pay, I can get shut out of my own system. So uh, that's, yeah. that's part of the problem with it. I mean, of course I'm going to pay, but it's, you know, 10 bucks a month. It's only 10 bucks a month. It sounds like a mafia kind of thing. You know, well, <laughs> I'm paying $10 a month. If, but if you don't pay, you know, you don't get protection. <laughs> your house burns down. Yeah. You know, I, I know it's – Yeah. Your family. <laughs> so, the thing is software is something that needs to be maintained. So at least with, with a cloud model, Adobe have a constant influx of money. So that means that they should continue to maintain stuff. So I don't think Adobe has any problems with money problem frankly and yeah but i think they were heading that way because people one of, one of the most pirated stuff was the adobe suite because it was so ridiculously expensive right and that's not that's not that's adobe's fault they could have yeah. certainly drop the price on their software and made it available to everybody because no no we have to make it you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars nobody could afford it and everybody i knew was pirating it you know and so mm-hmm. They could have dropped the price to a normal software price and then charged upgrades every time they had a – you know, I think it would have been fine. But anyway, that's another story. That's another rant. It is. I actually don't later this the year. cloud. I think a lot of people are put off the Lightroom by the cloudy pricing, but the cloudy pricing is fine with me. That, that, yeah. that doesn't bother me. But uh, yeah, in the same vein that you're 
going to try to learn Lightroom. I'm going to try to learn other programs and not be so uh, rigid in my my thinking too much. And I guess to just try to be open to other ideas with software and yeah, actually, and the stuff. other thing I need to get around to learning because I bought it on a pre-order and I haven't even downloaded it yet, which is absolutely terrible, is Aurora HDR from Trey Radcliffe. Yeah, I, I, I'm getting swamped with emails and posts in my Facebook timeline from those guys, and I'm just like, <laughs> you guys are annoying the hell out of me. I don't, yeah, I, I don't, do, I know. You, I've been, do I've been getting that? cranky with, I've been using the same HDR for years and years and years, uh, the Photomatics, and there hasn't really been any improvement in it. Mm. It's 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 been a, it's done a bit of an aperture in that sense, although not quite actually being abandoned. But it's just it hasn't changed anyway. So I, you know, I saw the video demos of Trey using his own product, and he seemed to be able to use it quite well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. So, but I still haven't actually you know I bought it because it was cheaper on pre-order. I still haven't even downloaded it, which is terrible. So that's another thing I need to do this year. I actually need to use the stuff I've paid for. Ah, well, good. That's that's. Uh... That's a useful uh, resolution. <laughs> yeah, so any gear I have that I haven't been using, it either needs to be sold or it needs to be used, be that physical know. or virtual, I think. Well, you know, you, as you just said that, I just thought of a resolution I could come up with, uh, which might work. It's starting to get rid of some of my stuff, it's starting to pare down things so I can buy new things. Yes, you can exchange old goods. You know, so three know, old lenses I, I, for one new lens or whatever. I know. I have such a hard time getting rid of stuff. When my my little office here has got a photo studio's worth of stuff because I just, you know, I'm not a hoarder. Although, <laughs> here's a suggestion, right? <laughs> you know the little teeny teeny tiny post-it notes you can get. Yes. Stick one of those in all of your gear, and every uh-huh. time you use it this year, take it off. And if at the end of the year there's anything left with a sticky on it, that is what you sell. Ah. Uh-huh. But I have to wait a whole year for that. Okay, or six months. Pick a time. Know. <laughs> you know, set yourself a goal. If I don't use it every three months, I don't care about it. Or if I don't use it every six months, I don't care about it. And just stick the stickies on. And whenever you, if you, you take something out of your bag and you find a sticky on it, throw it away. And then that thing is, you know, is to keep. And it's useful. All right. Yeah. yeah. I've got a couple of camera bodies I'd like to get rid of. I'm probably not getting a lot of money from them. But even if I got a few bucks for them, I could store them away so I can buy my new Fuji X. What is it? The X-Pro2? That just got announced. Because that's my camera. I'm, <laughs> I'm getting that camera. I, some way, I, somehow, some way. That is that yeah, is your... I want to make sure that I'm saying it because there's so many X, uh, so many new X cameras out. Uh, I guess the new X Pro Two. Yeah. No, I'm getting that camera. That's my <laughs> that's my next camera. It is an interchangeable lens camera, but it's a Fuji, and I think I'm more. I think that's going to be sort of my movement in general is towards. Uh, towards the mirrorless Fuji cameras cool. Um, in the future. I mean, I still need to use my Nikons for video and for other jobs and stuff like that, but yep. uh, I'm drooling over this new camera, uh, what I'm reading. I mean, drool. I literally, I drooled. <laughs> okay, so, so what features, what are the up-and-coming new, new features that we shall be looking at for our new cameras then? What does this thing do that makes, makes the saliva flow? Uh, it's, <laughs> it's new. Well, first of all, they've come out with a compressed, uh, raw format so that you can squeeze a little bit more on the card, but they are going 24 megapixels. They've raised up the sensitivity of the sensor, uh, meaning that practically mm-hmm. uh, with my XT100 right now and the current sensor, which is a X-Trans sensor, CMOS x it's X-Trans 2 CMOS sensor, 16 megapixels. At 6,400 
ISO, which I think is the native high. Mm. It looks beautiful. It it the the grain. I like to call it now. I don't want to really call it noise anymore because it sounds negative. The grain yeah. is is very natural looking. And the new camera, the new sensor, there's a new Xtrans CMOS three. The native has gone up to uh, twelve thousand. Uh, and people are saying that the twelve thousand looks as good as the sixty four hundred. And I, I shoot in a lot of low light, and yeah. I just like the way it looks. I like shooting low light um, with uh, you know wide open aperture, mm. and I just I think that looks good. Also, it's an interchangeable lens camera, so I don't have an interchangeable lens X system yet. So I'd like to be able to try different lenses. So is that is it a micro four thirds or what sort of size sensor is it? It's a APS-C size sensor. APS-C, so that's... I, I get very confused with these terms. So is that the old crop we're used to, or is that... Yeah, that's the 1.5 crop. Okay. So you you take a lens and you multiply it by 1.5 to get the 35-millimeter uh, full-frame equivalent. So it's the same as the, the D40, the, the, the yeah, D5100, the, 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 the Nikons I've always shown. The Nikon DX, um, it's, this, it's the Nikon DX format. Uh, gotcha. I'm not sure okay. what it is in the Canon, because I'm not a Canon person. I know Canon's got a bunch of different sensor sizes. But uh, it's got a better autofocus system, apparently. For me, street photography is auto, and I need, I need to go yeah. fast. Yeah. Uh, it's weather-resistant. So pictures huh. I've seen of people dropping it into the snow, which to me is very important. I'm about to go out in the snow today. I'm going to wrap up my camera in a, in a Ziploc bag. Aha. Uh-huh. It's not quite. Good tip. I presume you don't have the, zip, the, the bag going over the lens. So what, do you poke a hole for the lens and pop it out through? I, I, I found a way to do it. I poke a hole through the, through, on one side. of the, the bag has a label on it on one yeah. side. So that's the side that gets the – I put a little slit in there. And I stick the lens through that. So it's, I make a little slit and I push the lens as hard as I can so it gets really tight surrounding the lens. Yes. Um, the lens hood stays on the outside. Uh, I do have a 49 millimeter filter, which I think I'll put over the lens just to cover up any, uh, yeah. uh, any ceiling issues. Then the back part of the bag is clear so I can see the, the LCD through that. And then it's got a zip. The zipper kind of mm-hmm. closure on the top, and I'm able to put my strap on either side of the bag and then zip down the middle, and so I can hang the bag, outside, hang good. the camera outside of me. Uh, I might tape it up a little bit because it looks a little windy yet, so I don't want to get any liquid yeah. in there. And then, uh, you know, I'll probably go out for like five minutes and freeze to death and then come back in and see what I got. But uh, it, it does good, but the, a lot of the Fuji cameras are not weather sealed properly, so... This one seems like a proper weather seal. It's also got the optical viewfinder and electronic viewfinder built in. And I, I've been enjoying that on the Fuji cameras. Uh, I go back and forth between using the optical Both. and yeah. the cool. – So it looks like a – it's expensive. It's not, it's not a cheap camera. I mean it's not terribly expensive, but it's – when I'm not making a lot of money, it's expensive. So, you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, tr- turning, re- turning – Resolving junk- to sell stuff, you know, so I can buy it. Yeah, so anyway. turning junk you don't use into a shiny new camera with all the features you want, that seems like a pretty good thing to do. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a worthwhile resolution. So I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll, we'll check in at the end of the, you know, during the course of the year, see how that's going. See how we, <laughs> <laughs> or, or this time next year, we see, so all those resolutions <laughs> from last year, how do they go? I still hate Lightroom. I still haven't used Aurora HDR. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you haven't downloaded yet. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I hope not. That would be absolutely terrible. Oh, that's a, there's another resolution for me. Sorry, I wanted to add this one. I got to stop digital hoarding. I, I do that. I buy a lot of software that mm. I don't use. Um, it's so easy, isn't 
It is. Is it with the app store and, and the the, th- the ads popping up on Facebook? It's easy to go click and download something, and you know, like you Did said, ever, come out of PayPal and and you're done. Do you ever have that when you go to the uh, the iOS store to buy something, and then instead of saying buy, it says download, and you go, what? Did, did I already own this? <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> well, oh, good and oh, bad. <laughs> yeah. It means yeah, I've been nope. not using it, even though I That's want true. it. Well, I, I do digital hoard iOS apps, and so I'm going to try to stop buying as many of those uh, as I can. Um, I, I realize there's only a few programs I use over and over and over again, so yeah. just to stop, try to, you know, try to stop spending money in general. So. <laughs> It's oh, that's easier said than done. <laughs> I know. Well, there's a practical part of it, you yes. know. Well, if I look at like, hey, I want to get this camera, and instead of putting that five bucks towards the app, I put that five bucks in my PayPal account and, and leave it there just for the, uh, you know, eventual purchase of the X Pro Two. That might feel a little bit better. So, well, that's a good point, actually. So, if you every time you see you don't have a coffee or you don't do something, you put the money somewhere yeah. separate. Yeah, and I and I like I said I do want to get this camera. I mean, it's not because I'm drooling over it too, but I think it I think I can do work with it that will you know bring me to other levels of my photography skills. So uh, I think that's a worthwhile goal. And so yeah, yeah, if I don't buy a coffee or I don't buy an app and I put a few bucks into a pot someplace, yeah, sounds good. That's a good idea actually, because that way you realize how much you're saving and then you don't feel so bad when you do buy the camera. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Well, let's. Skip ahead then to, I am sure that, you know, the Christmas elf or whatever you believe in has brought along a whole bunch of new cameras for people over the <laughs> holiday season. So I said, I remember the first time I got my D40, my first real camera. So I decided, you know, I, I had used a film SLR and then I became a teenager. And as a teenager, <laughs> one loses interest in everything. That's, that's how it goes. And so for, I don't know, 10 years, maybe I just didn't do any photography at all. And then in my 20s, I suddenly went, do you know something? I used to really like that. I'm going to do that again. Mm-hmm. But obviously I'm not going to start buying film and stuff and developing it because that's not easy in the modern world and, well, I'm a computer guy. So I said, I'll buy a DSLR. It'll be great. So I did, and then it arrived, and I unboxed it. <laughs> and then I just remember picking it up and going, I have no idea how to make this thing go. So I figured if I twiddle the top thing to the A for or to auto, then at least photographs will come out. And it took me an awful long time to go from there to actually being, you know, comfortable. Like, I, I love mm-hmm. photographing on pure, full, complete, 100% manual. Like, I, my camera spends an awful lot of its time on M. <laughs> hey, we like to hear that. <laughs> switch man, I'll tell Tom. The Switch Manual guys will love to hear that. Yeah, but that took a while. So I guess there are going to be an awful lot of people for whom this is sounding familiar. So I guess do we have any, any thoughts? And the first thing I think I definitely, definitely want to say, and it sounds ridiculous, but the single most important thing to do is to read the manual. You don't have to read it all, right? Yeah. Flick, flick through it and read the headings. I, I've, got a, I've got some opinions about that, but I'll, I'll let Okay, you well, my theory, it works for me anyway. So my theory is that you don't, don't read it like a book, right? It's not a novel. It's not going to keep you entertained. It's not going to keep you excited. But if you flick through it and read the headings, you will know what the camera can do. And all you have to do is sky away on the back of your head that it has rear curtain sync and front curtain sync. Just know that it has these things, but don't bother reading about how to do it. But just know that when you decide that you do need to be able to do it, that you know that it's in the manual and that you can figure out how to do it. So just know what the camera can do by scanning the manual. Okay. And I uh, keep a copy of my manual on my iPhone as a PDF. Well, I was going to say that, yeah. I, I'm a... 
I feel like Scotty on Star Trek. You know, he sits down uh, for his. Uh, you know, he goes on shore leave and he brings mm-hmm. technical manuals with him. And and I do. <laughs> I love. I love manuals. I've always been a manual guy. And that's probably part of my hoarding here. Is I got tons of manuals. So uh, I agree with you to a point. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I'm, I'm very much like yes. Uh, with every camera, pretty much every modern camera you can get, you can go to the manufacturer's website and you can download a PDF version of the manual. Yeah. And to me, that's endlessly more. It's it's infinitely more um, useful than the paper one, in mm. the sense that you can search for things. Yes. Very easily. Um, yeah, like flicking through the paper manual, I don't see a problem with that. The only thing I have a problem with the paper manuals is they tend to be written poorly. And the English isn't always correct. <laughs> the English isn't always correct, but also the context of the manual is a very difficult one to follow. Like, why would I use this feature? Or, mm. you know, they, it says these features are there, but if you get a new camera and you're not sure about what to do with it, often these things don't make sense in the first place. So in addition to using the manual, I've pretty much always done a a hard target search for people's reviews of the camera online Uh because most of the time those people are speaking English. And I'm not meaning this as English-centered. You know, I'm speaking my own language. But I mean – Yeah, so if you're in France, you're probably not listening to this podcast. But if you were, you would search in French. (laughs) Yeah, but what I mean is that they're writing in their own language and their own experiences – and they're often finding out what's important about the camera for them first. Um, hmm. my, my analog to this is my Fuji X100T. And the manual on it was, is t- actually is totally useless. It's a very small manual. Um, they didn't really put a big fat manual into the, into the box. So in order to get the full one, I had to go online. Interesting. Yeah, which was – I was bummed out about that because I love – like I said, I like sitting down with manuals. Uh, and, you know, and – I I couldn't understand a lot of what I was looking at. I don't know why I was going to use certain features. And so I relied on a few reviewers, and I'm, they're they're escaping me right now who they are. Um, and they weren't just reviewing it. They were reviewing some of the technology. So uh, someone was talking about the sensor on the on the uh, – on the camera and how it doesn't really have an iOS on it. And sort of, mm. you, it sort of picks up the iOS after you take the picture. And I thought that was, for me, it was a little technical, but for me it was very interesting uh, and useful because then it helped me understand how to set the ISO on the camera yeah, and how to process the pictures properly. So I, I would say in addition to looking at the manual, even though I'm kind of not, you know, I, I'm a little down on the manuals these days, I would find people who are, reviewing the camera that you have. And so going to like places like Petapixel and DP Preview and then just doing a Google search for certain, you know, like if you got a new Fuji X, you know, what is it? You know, X100T, let's say that, mm-hmm. and do a search for that and find like the top five reviews and read those. And I think those are going to those are going to give you, you know, a bit more about how to use your camera. Actually, maybe not to how to use it, but then you can read about what the reviewers are talking about and then go back to your manual and see how to implement yes, the, the things they're talking about. Yeah. Yes, because they're not in the reviews, they're not they're really not going to spend a lot of time telling you that you need to turn this switch and do that switch. It depends on who who's writing it. But yeah. if you read about it, then you can go back to your PDF version, you can type in, you know, uh, classic Chrome on on the the search term, and it'll find out where that is on your camera, and then you can figure out how to use it. So, yeah. Sorry, that was no, 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 that, that, long-winded. That's yeah, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Which I am long-winded. Sorry. 
Okay, so... Okay, so, so reading the manual, def- or, or knowing what the camera can do is definitely useful, because particularly, actually, so you're, the way it sort of comes out to me is that you're, you're reading something online, you, 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 you've come across a technique that you, that you say, ooh, this sounds like fun, mm-hmm. but it says I need to put my camera into auto-bracketing mode. Can my camera do that? Well, if you already know it can, then the next question becomes, well, how? Well, that's easy. You go to your PDF, you type in bracketing, and it goes, ah, so I click this menu, then this menu, then this menu, then this menu, and deep down, lo and behold, ta-da, here's what I want. But if you didn't know that your camera could do it, you you may have said, oh, well, that's for other people to do, not for me. Right, right. So, Yeah. Okay, so we're back to our person. They're standing there out in a the field with their shiny new camera. They've oh. read the manual, but they're still finding it rather intimidating. So any tips on how to get, how to build that familiarity with your device? How, is there a path? Patience, patience. Patience? <laughs> patience and practice. That, that, that. No, really, patience and... Um... I mean, this is sort of the personal part of it mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I know we all want to like dive into something and get it working right away. And and part of what I've noticed, well, at least with people I work with and some clients, is that they don't really want to spend the time looking at the manual. They want to just dive into the hmm. the device or the camera right away. And I'm like, dude, you know, you got to spend some time. You got to you got to take it easy. <laughs> the camera; these are very complex machines. Yes, and you know it, it's not going to come right away. So I think I, I I always caution to have some patience with yourself too, because people tend to beat up those. It's like, oh, it's too complex, and I'm stupid, and I can't figure this. Like, no, you're not. Yeah. Um. You know, these are not. They are complex machines, but you're not a. You know, you're not an idiot. You can. You can read. You can spend time figuring this out. It's it's not that difficult. But you there's a lot to absorb. And yeah. these devices are are getting more and more complex, and there is that tendency to want to throw the switch on A, and start taking pictures. But I'm I'm taking it that you bought a new camera, or you got a new camera for Christmas, or bought it before the end of the year to get it off on your taxes because you wanted to use this device, and you just need to take some time. So I mean, first be patient. Yeah, it's gonna. I'm still. I think it took me a year to get a hold of my. You know learn all the ins and outs of my Fuji and I'm usually pretty good at learning things, but it's a camera that really uh, needed my patience and I, you know, I'm getting the best out of it now. I think I'm probably 95% up on the camera. There's probably still a little bit that I don't know about. Yeah. So there's no substitute for time. So I guess a corollary to that is, the single worst time to buy a new camera is just before you go on that big trip where you want to capture it. <laughs> but then you can just put it on A and then, you know. Hope for the hope, best. Hope for the yeah. best. But just but be aware that you are hoping for the best. And, you know, when you get back, don't say, well, the camera is a piece of junk because it didn't work. No, it's just you guys aren't you're not, you're not a on team. the same page yet. You know? Yeah, you've got to be a team with your camera because yeah. as a computer guy, but the, the, the single most important thing I think everyone should understand about computers is that they're absolutely stupid. Computers have no intelligence whatsoever, and your camera is just a bit like a computer with some glass in front of it. Right. So there are things it's going to be able to do, but you, as the more intelligent member of the team, are going to have to start asserting yourself over the camera's naivete. You know, it, it's, you know, on average, it does the right thing, but yeah, and you're the, the world is an average. Yeah. So 
I guess my approach is you start to assert a little bit more control and the time you assert that control is when you spot the camera going wrong. So you're you're taking pictures and you're getting them home and you're going, no, no, you, you guessed wrong. You, That's not right. Okay, now how do I make that right? How do I tell the camera not to guess but to just listen to me on that aspect? So mm-hmm. maybe it's that the, the auto white balance has gotten completely confused by the fact that the whole place is full of snow or something. Right. You say, okay, well... How do I? Then you go look on your menu. And say, so how do I assert control over just that? I'm going to leave the camera in A or in a in a mostly automatic mode. But I just now want to assert control over this one thing that's going wrong. And then you find the things in the menu. And the next thing you know, ah, okay. So I can set my white balance to auto, or I can dial in one of these values, or I can take a snap picture and tell it what's white. Okay, so that's now stored away in the memory banks. And any time that the silly computer makes a mistake on a white balance, I now know how to assert control over that. And maybe I'll choose to leave it on auto 90% of the time, but I know that the next time it's silly, I can step in. And little by little, as you start to learn all the different places where you can step in, it becomes much more of a partnership between you and the device because, Mm -hmm. you know, when it gets it right, let it at it. You know, let the camera do the work. But then, you know, know how to tweak its ears when it goes wrong. Can I add to that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It just made me think that uh, probably a good portion of cameras these days are are able to shoot RAW and JPEG. Mm -hmm. And I would suggest that everybody set their camera to shoot RAW plus JPEG. And we might get a little pushback on this, but but to tie into what you're saying... Is that because if you're if you got a raw file as a backup, mm-hmm. then you then you can mess up a few things, yes, and and recover them later. So yeah, within, a, within a range, but yeah, you, within a range, yes. Yeah. I mean, you have you have some leeway, but you certainly have a lot more leeway than if you were just shooting a JPEG. Oh yeah. So like you said, uh, if you got the auto white balance wrong, and you shot that you know New Year's Eve party with auto white balance wrong, but if you were shooting raw. Then you've got these raw files that you can go mm-hmm. back to and and adjust. Yes. Um, and and you don't have to learn the raw files right away. You can just store them to the point where later on, when you get the processing program that you're going to work with down the line, you've got these raw sitting there, and you say, "Well, now I can go back to these pictures that I first started shooting, and you know I can mess with them a little bit and and fix some of the things that uh, I didn't quite capture right." Now, again, it's raw is not a you know it's going to solve all your problems. But you do have some leeway in terms of you know fixing exposure a little bit, certainly fixing white balance, uh, you know, and a few other little things. We won't get into a lot of details, but you know, again, I think the vast majority of cameras these days can shoot both. So I would say first make sure your camera is shooting in both. Yes, uh, you know, it's going to use a little more storage space, sure, but storage is cheap. You know, cards are cheap, hard drives are cheap, uh, and then. You know, a year down the line, you can go back and say, oh, man, you know, those first pictures I shot, I shot them with RAW, so I can go and I can go and mess with them and make a better version of what I tried to shoot. And I guess, actually, your relationship with your photo editing software is the same as that relationship with the camera, where, you know, you let it do a lot of the stuff by itself, but then yeah. you start to tweak its ears when it goes wrong. It's like, no, I, I'm now beginning to recognize that this... What I thought was a lack of contrast is actually the fact that the white balance is off and it's all gone a bit yellow, so none of the whites feel like white. Therefore, if I correct the white balance, the image will pop. I shouldn't be, you know, dialing in ever more contrast. I should be fixing the white balance. You know, you you get to learn what it is that's wrong, and then I guess you can fix it in post and also learn how to not, you know, how you might want to steer the camera as well. I guess it's all interrelated. Yeah, and it also takes a little bit of pressure off you too because – you can say, well, you know, if I mess up a little bit, then, you know, later on down the line when I start to learn more about, you know, the camera and more about processing, um, mm. I, can, I can get to those things eventually. So 
you know, you don't beat yourself up immediately when, you know, your pictures come out blue or something like that. You're going you're gonna to say, okay, well, this is part of the learning process. You know, I'm yes. learning the system and I do have a little bit of fallback on. But, you know, I sh- my first digital camera I had uh, was a Nikon D100. And the, the default settings on that camera when I got it were, were such that I was shooting JPEG only. Mm. Uh, I, it did shoot RAW, but for some reason the RAW files um, – were, were taking forever to write to the to the camera, and I just couldn't spend the time with it. So I turned that off. Yeah. And here's goes goes back to what you talked about reading in the manual or like skimming through the manual. I, it took me a while to figure out that the raw setting I had on the camera was wrong. So oh. it was recording something. I can't remember what it was because it's an old camera, but it was recording the raw in such a way that it took a long time to save. And I flipped the switch, virtual switch, mm-hmm. to change the raw setting, and all of a sudden it was recording raw um, at a normal speed. And so, like, I went, on a, I went on a bunch of trips with that camera, and I only shot JPEG. So I think I went on these trips to uh, – I went to Seattle, mm. to Washington State. And I was taking all these great landscapes. Now, it's a six-megapixel camera, granted. So this is, you know, this is one of the first DSLRs yeah. I had. But I can't go back and really, really reprocess those pictures because the camera was set on a default for JPEG, and the pictures are kind of locked. Yeah. So if I had read the manual or skimmed it a little bit, I would have – maybe understood a little bit more about the, the settings and I could have gone back and at least reprocessed some of those pictures. I mean, six megapixels is not a lot, but I could have made something more from those, yes. from yeah. those shots. So, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm done with that. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> that's, that's good. Um, but, uh, another another t- sort of topic I definitely want to touch on this is that the – that dial of settings, well, it's not always a dial, but that, that range of settings, the modes the camera can be in, there's a sort of a hierarchy to those. So sort of at one extreme, you have let the camera decide everything, which is full auto. And at the other extreme, you have let the camera decide nothing. I shall decide everything, which is full manual. But there's quite a bit in between those two extremes. Yeah. And yeah. a nice way to progress is to sort of move from up the hierarchy. So I guess, you know, starting at full auto as the, you know, give the camera everything. The next step is the sort of scene modes where you dial it to like a picture of a guy running for stuff that's fast and a picture Mm -hmm. of a sunset for a sunset and a picture of a portrait for a portrait. And these things are almost complete auto, but you're just giving the camera a hint as to what's going on so the camera Mm -hmm. can make more sensible defaults. Like the running man is a great example because that means the camera is going to default to short shutter speeds and it's going to try its best to use the aperture or the ISO to compensate for that. Whereas yeah. if you flip it into portrait mode, it's going to decide, well, I don't mind if a bit of a long shutter speed and what I really want is, you know, nice low noise and get this person looking good and maybe a shallow depth of field. And so the camera will prioritize different things because you're giving it at least a hint of what's going on. Now, obviously, if you forget you've done that and you have it on the running man and you're trying to take pictures at sunset, it's not going to go very well for you. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, you're asserting a little bit of control. Not much, but a little bit. You're just a gentle hint. Yeah, I would also be careful with that. Uh, those modes. First of all, number one, some cameras won't let you shoot those modes in RAW. Well, that's mean. I, I don't know if that's still the case. I know earlier cameras let that happen. I don't know about newer cameras if the, if you can set up RAW and they will shoot in those modes. So just check the manual. Yeah. Read the manual on that because it would be a bummer to like, you know, thinking you want to shoot RAW and then setting it up in a in a mode to shoot, you know, nighttime skylines because the little switch says nighttime and then it's just shooting jpegs so double check that first the other thing i would caution is those things become like training wheels um but they can become crutches yeah i wouldn't say stay with them for long yeah right so you might buy a 1200 dollars camera and you leave it in a scene mode and you're not taking advantage of what the 
the $1,200 camera can give you. Yeah. So, you know, I would say they're great to play around with, but, you know, pull those training wheels off as fast as you can uh, and yeah. start working your way up the scale because um, yeah, it, it's a shame temporary. to have this yeah. – you know, great piece of technology and have it make all the decisions. And you still might get frustrated with some of the decisions sure. it makes. Yeah, because it's, it's still like, guessing, right? It's still a dumb yeah, computer. It, and it's not a smart machine. It's it's hoping that it's going to guess what you want, but, it, you know, it may not. And, again, the the tendency is to blame yourself that you didn't get the picture. And it's like, no, it's never you. It's, it's the device. You just need to learn it and work with it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, going up those scales, like, we, you know, switch to manual, we do the – we have the manual, then we do uh, auto um, aperture priority, shutter priority, and then and then um, full uh, auto mode. Yeah. Now, there is and, one other slight advantage. Uh, something you can use those scene modes for is if you start paying attention to what the camera picks. So you're in the one place and you stick it to portrait and watch what aperture and ISO and so forth the camera picks. And then you change the dial to something else and watch how it changes its mind. Mm-hmm. You can start to learn then some of the concepts of what's going on. Why, why would a running man, why would that make the camera suddenly choose to go with these really, really short shutter speeds? Oh, it's because otherwise the guy will be blurred. Okay. And so watching what it does in those modes can be helpful to you to then go to the next click of the dial, which is your aperture priority, shutter priority, which is in Nikon land, uh, your A and your S. And then what is it in Canon land? It's like T. It's AV and TV. Uh, and, and that is also for another brand as well. Okay, so yeah, so AVTV yeah. or S. <laughs> I never like the vast TV. majority of the world uses S and A for shutter, shutter priority, aperture, aperture and and uh, Canon does something else. But it's aperture value that. and time value, isn't it? AVTV. Yep. Yeah. So it, it is. Uh, I see AV is, I'm, I'm old school. I see AV as audio visual and TV yeah. as television. <laughs> Likewise, like a TV is something that we all recognize that we I, think of. So if anything, TV makes me think ah movie mode. No, I know, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're being stubborn by by not going with everybody else. But anyway, uh, we call it inertia. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly is inertia. Yeah. So there, are your next modes where basically you assert control over either the shutter speed or the aperture, and let the camera's brain deal with the other two. Yeah, it's letting the camera do some of the lifting for you. It's like being an assistant in some way. Yeah, I, I do think that. We, we it, you know, and Tom and I do our class, and we do the, those modes. We like to say, we kind of like to say they're baby steps towards manual. I, we switch that around a little bit because a lot of professional photographers use those modes mm. depending on what they are wanting to control. And so if you're in aperture priority mode, you're really wanting to control the depth of field uh, of the image. You're not, at that point, you're really not worried about light as much. Yes. You're more worried about what the other characteristics of those modes are. So aperture's other characteristic is to deal with depth of field. And so when you're in an aperture priority mode, you're really trying to concern yourself with depth of field. And and likewise, in shutter priority mode, you're concerned with what the other aspect of shutter is, is stopping motion or letting motion blur. So yeah. then you're in control of that. And then the camera is dealing – then you're letting the camera deal with the light aspect with the amount of light to get a proper exposure. So you're in control of, let's say you're in control of aperture. So you're controlling, you're in aperture priority, you're controlling the depth of field. And you're, you're telling the camera, say, well, you deal with the exposure a little bit, you know, generally. Yeah. This is, I'm generalizing. Yeah, yeah, so basically, 
Yeah, if you're working fast, that's kind of what you're dealing with. Yeah, so you're saying to the camera, I trust your light meter, and I know you can do mathematics because you're a little computer. Right. Therefore, <laughs> normally you have three variables to play with, which is how sensitive your ISO, how long the, 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 the shutter stays open, which is your exposure, and how wide, the, you know, how much light you let in, which is your aperture. Normally you get to play with all three of those to make a functional, you know, to make a correct exposure. But I am now telling you that I have taken this one out of the equation for you, and you may play with the other two to your heart's content, and the end result should be a properly exposed photograph, according to your light meter. So then you, yeah, so if you, yeah, so if you want to control depth of field, then you set aperture priority mode, and if you want to control motion be either intentionally blurring or intentionally stopping, then you take the other one and let the camera play with the other two. And but then, of course, and in both of these modes, what they have in common is that you have said to the camera, I trust your light meter. Well, you trust it to a certain extent because most cameras then have an exposure compensation dial. Okay, good, that's on... where I was hoping you were going to go. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, what's really nice is these days the uh, uh, again I'm going to sound like a Fuji guy. I'm not getting paid by Fuji. I love <laughs> Are you sure? Guys. I think I think there might be a line of work for you in that. <laughs> I, I would love to work for. I'd love to be a spokesperson for them anyway because I, I think they deserve it. But they've started putting a lot of these dials on the outside of the camera, mm-hmm. so uh, an exposure, a compensation dial is on the outside of a lot of the Fuji cameras where you can actually have direct um, compensation of the exposure. So you could say to the camera, yeah, you're okay on the exposure, but I'm going to adjust it a little bit to my liking. You know? Yes. So that's where that, that dial comes in. You are, you're, like you said, you're, getting the, you're letting the camera do some of the heavy lifting and you trust it a little bit, but when you can override it a little bit when you're like, well, you know, it's okay, but I'm going to do something a little bit better. Yeah, so what you're saying with ex- with these exposure compensation or exposure bias is that you're saying, I want it a little bit brighter than your algorithm right. tells you, or I want it a little bit darker than your algorithm tells you. And so typical situation might be snow, because yeah. <laughs> like a normal everyday Irish day, if you expose it for your 18% grey, your, your mathematically correct exposure, an Irish landscape will look correct. But when it's snowing, the real world is actually brighter than the real world normally is. And so if you do an average exposure in snow, it goes gray and blech. Well, basically, the camera's looking at it and saying, wow. Too light. There's a a lot of light there. Because the camera's just looking at light and is trying Mm -hmm. to come up with an exposure that's, like you said, 18% gray. And we could probably do a whole episode about explaining that. But the camera has to have a certain, you know bias towards one exposure and it's and that's what it looks at and you know it looks at a snowstorm and it says it's too bright or it looks at a cave or a, yeah. you know, a coal mine and it says it's too dark so it tries to bring it both of those to a basic level which is 18% gray and of course snow is not you know um, yeah. it's not snow is not gray and a coal you know uh, a cave is not gray so yes you need to so yeah sure. so at that point what yeah. you say is I want this to be brighter than you think is normal because snow is brighter than normal. Therefore, now start doing all of your automatic calculations, but aim too high. And I have right. told you how far too high to aim. <laughs> but, yeah, you know, know, this goes back to uh, – this will also go back to me saying another good reason to shoot raw hmm. is because even if the camera does make some slightly poor exposure decisions or you do, yes. uh, you, can, you can kind of fix those later and uh, – yeah, within a range, but within a much, much, much bigger range than you could otherwise. Well, yeah, and it, the range gets bigger and bigger every year as the technology of the sensors gets better mm. and better because the dynamic range gets better and better every year. So you you do have a little bit of a um, a wider uh, um, headroom. 
headroom, I would say. I was going to say uh, something about error. I'm, I'm room for yeah, error. You, you, yeah, you have more... The, the, yeah, the, if you think of it like playing pool, the, the pockets keep getting wider. Get bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah, and at some point in the future... Like, I, I, I don't talk about ISO a lot these days when I'm mm. teaching, although it is a factor, but... Again, as the cameras are getting newer and newer these years, you know, and I'm sure people who have bought cameras, you know, for got Christmas presents, they're up. These are the most recent cameras. Yeah. Hopefully. Uh, ISO is becoming less and less of an issue. Um, most of these cameras have what's called automatic ISO, where the camera gets to choose. You, you tell the camera to do this, but the mm-hmm. camera will choose the ISO based on, you know, its exposure mode, uh, and you don't have to deal with it. And in the old days of digital, you know, you wouldn't want to shoot high ISO too much because yeah, the images were ugly. Images were ugly. The sensors were not very good in low light and it would be noisy. But these days the sensors are getting much better. And so like on the Fuji camera I was talking about uh, before, the new X-Pro2, I think it goes up to 12,000 and it looks very nice. So, you know, you could shoot in low light uh, and not worry about your ISO settings too much because the picture will look very nice. So I think at some point in the not too distant future – ISO will not even be an issue anymore. Yeah. You'll just have your camera. I don't even know if you'll set it, um, which would be kind of great because you could go from daylight, you know, you can be shooting outdoors immediately and then run inside and your camera will understand that and adjust the ISO appropriately. And then you're just back to shooting with shutter speed and aperture and you'll, and you'll get a, as good of a picture indoors as you do outdoors because the the amount of grain in the picture will will not even be an issue. So yeah. that's my – I mean, that's a prediction, which is not, you know, duh. <laughs> it's like, well, it's but, a trend, and we hope it continues. It is a trend. I, I shoot mostly on auto ISO these days on my, on my Fuji camera because, you know, it's one thing I don't really need to be thinking about while I'm running in and out uh, doing my street photography. I, I don't have time to set that setting every time – I, I change my, you know, indoors and outdoors. I want to change yeah. shutter speed and aperture. And those are things I'm really concerned with. So, Yeah, like in, when I was shooting with my older Nikon, the D40, it was something I had to think about all the time because otherwise yeah. the pictures yeah. looked ugh. Well, and, I mean, the D5100 I have now is not a new camera by any stretch of the imagination. But dude, compared try shooting to the with other, film. <laughs> yeah, well, see, that's the thing. See, that's where I came from, right? So yeah, my, I know, my but film, was, like you you bought Kodak, you stuck Kodachrome 25. Believe me, pay people. There was Kodachrome, and it was ISO 25. It was one of the most beautiful films. Uh, not very sensitive to light at all. Hence the um, I ISO of 25. I would go very unsensitive to light. Yeah, but it was very very fine grain, and it was a beautiful film. But you stuck that in your camera, and you were kind of screwed if you were <laughs> shooting outdoors. And then suddenly, for some reason, you had to run indoors. You either had to take the, you had to roll the film out of the camera, right, and make sure Difficult. there was enough. Which is difficult, not impossible, difficult, and make sure there was enough leader left on the film so that you could reload it. Yep. Uh, or you had to have a second camera with a different film stock in it so that you could run indoors and outdoors. So, you know, yeah, yeah you mean, were kind of stuck with it. Um, that was a big decision because you were making your decision on what ISO to use when you were standing in the camera shop buying the film for the week. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, to go back to the learning thing, though, about, like, the new cameras, again, if you don't, if you don't know about how to turn on ISO in your camera, uh, the auto ISO or something like that, one of the things Tom and I have done just to make it easy for people is to sort of say, like, are you going to shoot indoors or are you going to shoot outdoors? And if you're going to mm-hmm. shoot outdoors, you set your ISO to this number or, like, close to this number. If you're going to go mm-hmm. indoors, you shoot this. And you kind of set it and forget it. Yeah. You know, the old Ron Popeil, I know we used to have a uh, – um, we used to have a guy who sold uh, all these kind of gadgets late night on television. His name was Ron Popeil and he had a – 
rotisserie right. uh, that you could buy. It. And he goes, just set it and forget it. Yeah. <laughs> just like the same kind of thing. It's like as initially just to get started with the camera, you know, if you're outdoors, maybe you set your ISO to, you know, it's a bright outdoors. You set it to 200 or 400 and you just leave it there for the day. Yeah, you know? generally speaking, actually, the, my technique is outside and I'm not thinking about it. Leave it at 400 and unless reality gives me a reason to reconsider, right. just leave it there. Yeah, and the same thing if you're going indoors. So it's one. It's just one less thing to think about as you're learning your new piece of gear that you got for the holidays. Yeah. Although, of course, the chances are if your camera has a very, very good range of ISO, then auto is probably actually perfectly fine because the camera... My understanding of most of the auto modes on most cameras is they don't use the extremes. Mm, or they try to avoid using extremes. That's true, no. No, no. I've okay. got uh, my X Pro, my my X one hundred T often goes to sixty four hundred a lot, um, and I'm very well, happy. It's an extreme for, for that camera, is it? It is. Well, it's is not. It? Okay. It, it's the extreme for the raw files. You can you can push it to two stops above that, but you can't shoot raw. And I wrote a whole post on my blog about what that actually is. It's um, you on some of these cameras, you can go, you know, well past the the limit. You'll yeah, have which in Nikon in Nikon world, that's the H modes. Yeah, high one and high two. I don't think those are really shooting natively at those ISOs. What they're doing is that they're reprocessing the picture. So they're shooting at a, your, your camera, like on the X100T, the camera goes natively, I think natively, I, there's a debate about this, but I think hmm. it natively goes to 6400. But if you want to shoot those other two high things, A, it doesn't give you a RAW file. Because what it's doing, the camera is taking the RAW file, yeah. it's shooting it at 6400 really, and then it's processing it at, at the higher speeds. It's basically doing a multiplication and then it tries to do a bit of noise reduction and the end result is, generally speaking, not yeah. particularly well, it's good. Under, it's underexposing. It's underexposing and then overprocessing to, yeah. to compensate for that. Because when you, you go higher on the ISO scale, you underexpose. Yes, which you used to be able to do with physical film as well. You'd put in yeah. 400 ISO and you'd tell the camera it's 800 ISO. And then you process for... Yeah. And then you process for, for 800 and... It, it works, but it doesn't generally speaking give one the prettiest of photographs. Right. Yeah. So, and uh, that's the other thing I love about these cameras. That's what makes me feel like an old time photographer because it's doing that. It doesn't explicitly say that it's doing it. Yes. Fuji keeps that under wraps, but it took me like an hour to look at it. I'm like, wait a minute, <laughs> and I was like, oh, it's forcing. Yeah. It's like forcing the film. Yeah, it's forcing the film. But uh, yeah, my camera will go to the extreme. It will shoot at. Uh, 6400. The one thing you have to know about auto ISO is that there's a whole bunch of other settings in auto ISO. Like auto, auto, auto <laughs> ISO will give you uh, the, the option to say there's a minimum shutter speed that you want the camera to shoot at. Yeah. So you can say, I want auto, auto ISO on, but I also want the camera to shoot at a minimum of one, you know, one sixtieth of a second. Because hmm. maybe you're shooting something where you want that shutter speed. And so the camera will adjust the ISO so that the shutter speed is always at one sixtieth of a second. Um, yeah. So it's not just one setting. You need to learn these other settings, which can be kind of frustrating. That's why I go back to the manual and, and you know, read up about the, the reviews because people have figured this stuff out already for you. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, sorry. Was another no, that's, that's good. <laughs> okay, well, I, we were aiming for an hour-long show, so we have an hour-long So any, any final thoughts you want to give before we, we wrap it up? Uh... <laughs> Well, we just talked about cameras. I'm sure people get a lot of other stuff. Well, I think – well, yeah. Okay, okay, that's a good point actually. So is is there a particular tip for the, the more generic stuff? So you got some new lenses, some new flashes, whatever. Is there a generic tip for getting the most out of those or is it does it just come down to practice, practice, practice? 
Oh gosh. <laughs> That's a very long question for and final thoughts. <laughs> it's a funny <laughs> Believe me, I'm gonna be locked up in this room all day. I could talk for another two hours. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, God. Um Well, I do think it applies you know, not only for camera bodies but for lenses, is reading about what other people have said about it. Um you know, I love this guy's um What's his name? Now I'm spacing out. The guy who writes the reviews. Oh, come on. You know who I'm talking about. He's very controversial. Ken? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Ken, Ken what? <laughs> I know exactly who you mean. I can see his I'm website. He's got yellow, yellow titles and... Yeah, Ken, Ken Rockwell. That's the one. He's a, he's a bit of a controversial... Uh, um, I go back and forth between liking him and, and disagreeing with him, which I think is actually good for a reviewer. Yeah, I, but, I tend to go, I'll read Ken, and I'll read DP Review, Yeah, and then yeah. I'll sort of decide between those two, what I feel. Yeah, Ken does a lot about lenses, too. He he writes about lenses. He also writes them from the point of view of someone who uses it and how it feels. And so, uh, you know, if you've got a new lens or a new piece of gear, go check out his site, because there's a pretty good chance he's written something about it. I don't know how he gets all this stuff, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> chance. Um, that... I would I would read up about because again you want to find out tips and stuff like that tips and tricks like little switches on the lenses like turning on image stabilization, um, you know what the filter size is, you know whether it's an internal or external focusing lens which gives you some help about how to physically deal with the lens, whether or not you need a lens shade or not like that. So, you know check out his site and uh, you know I'm I'm sure everybody who's listening to it has has gone to this guy's site but I, I definitely give him a thumbs up. For that. And again, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to uh, agree with everything he says. But there's someone who's actually spent some time with the with the gear. Yeah, you don't have to agree with everyone's opinions to to, yeah. to find them useful to read. No, yeah. I, I tend to I tend to be on Ken's site before I click the buy button. But actually, it's probably a good idea to get into the habit of coming back because the chances are, before you buy a lens, you've you've tossed a whole bunch of ideas around your head, and by the yeah. time you actually have it in your hand, you've probably forgotten which reviewer said exactly what about what. So it's probably actually worth revisiting those reviews after you have the device to remind yourself what the cool features are. Yeah. And I have got a, a project for people with new lenses. Oh. This is good to do. You can do this any day, you know, indoors, outdoors, snow, whatever. Okay. But you want to find the sweet spot of your lens. And what does that mean? Uh, so you buy a new lens. Say you buy a 50 millimeter and it's a f1.8. So it means mm -hmm. it's a very wide lens. You can shoot in, you know, next to the low light. Yeah. Um, Every lens has got a sweet spot where it's it it the lens is at its sharpest. Yeah, right? actually, th this is a really good point because a lot of people say to me that the thing I hear all the time is, "Why are you buying an f one point four lens? You never need to shoot that open." And it's like, "No, I know that, but it also means the sweet spots come down." Right. Why would the sweet spot come down? Well, so we'll, we'll do a little quick lesson. I'll see okay. Sweet Every lens um, has uh, will have a sweet spot where. You set the aperture at a certain number, and it is the sharpest that the lens can get. Mm -hmm. And a great way to play around with this, a great way to find it is to basically set up your camera with the lens, point at a, you know, something with a lot of detail, maybe like a newspaper or something like that. Yeah, or uh, something very textured like stonework or brickwork. Yeah. Maybe. yeah, something that you can see the, you can see the details. And take a picture, make sure the exposure is right, but take a bunch of pictures and set that lens at every aperture setting. So okay. you'll end up with like maybe 30 pictures. 
Mm-hmm. So you start wide open and then you go click down a third of stop and click and take a picture, take a picture. Of course, make sure your exposure, you yes. know, you change your exposure all the time. Um, generally, it's probably better to set a certain, to set a single ISO, you know, setting and then yes. just use your shutter speed to change the uh, exposure. What you'll end up with is a series of 30 pictures and you'll look at them and you'll say, wow, the camera at wide open at 1.8 is not as sharp. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. Am I getting a bad lens? No, most lenses are not very good when they're wide open. Yeah. Uh, mainly because just it's an optics thing. Yeah. I can, also, uh, you'll look, sorry. I was going to say on the other extreme is also true. I think a lot of a lot of newbies will say, well, I want the sharpest possible picture with the best possible depth of field. So I'll go the other extreme and I'll lock the lens completely down. And that right. also, not good. Right. It's, uh, boy, I'm always getting this wrong. <laughs> What's well, a um, U-shape? Well, depending on what way you graph it, I guess it's either. Yeah. Uh, well, why on the far end? It's it's um, is it, it's it's Watchamajigger interference, isn't it? And I can't think of the name of it now. Fraun is it Fraunhofer or? No, we're both getting old, so our brains we're are getting old. Yeah. Well, my old physics lecture is going to be very cranky. Yeah, Dis- because I learned about this stuff and I used to be able to do the mathematics. And oh well, anyway, yeah, anyway, so it's it's not a- very good at either extreme, but somewhere exactly. in between, somewhere in there, somewhere in between. There's actually a good range. There's a there's a, a range where that U shape is. Uh, so there's a, um, a wide aperture and a closed down aperture that you have a nice range with. And so this way, when you get your lens, you look at it, you'll say, okay, well, you know, I can shoot at 1.8 or two and I understand it won't be as sharp, but I can shoot in the dark and blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. Uh, or I can shoot at F16 and I know it's going to be, um, not as sharp, but I get a lot of depth of field. But if I want that sweet spot, I know where that is. And so you can do that with every lens that you have. Yeah, and it's also, don't think it's going to be halfway between the two extremes, because it won't, and it'll be different for every lens you have. Exactly. Yeah, so it's a good thing to do during the winter when you're shut in and you just want to learn about your gear. Uh, and then you'll, you'll again, this whole thing about getting your gear is really learning about it and understanding what the capabilities are and what the limits are. Everything's got these limits, so you want to understand that. So when you really are going to go out and start using this stuff, you know, okay, well, I can't shoot you know, at F16 with this lens because it's going to be less sharp. Um, space. I really want to. I want to find out what that's called. Not distraction. What is it? Diffraction. Diffraction. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! I am getting old. Yeah. Diffraction is yeah. that uh, the the more you close down the lens, the more the light scatters uh, towards the sensor, and so it actually, even though we're all learning that you shut down your lens, you get more depth of field, so you get a basically a sharper image. What ends up happening is the dis- diffraction kicks in. And the sensor is not able to capture the light properly, so you end up getting a softer picture. So you and it's really fun to see that when you're when you do this test, yeah, because you'll see, wow, wow, at f11 it's sharp, but f22 it the picture gets soft again. It seems counterintuitive, and there's nothing wrong with your lens. Yeah, that's normal. That's optics because it's right. It's, Don't send it back. It's an optics thing and a sensor thing. Yeah, because basically, really, like if you were to try to make your own lenses. The, the effects that our lenses still show are by nature even stronger than we see them. It's just that our modern lens techniques are so advanced that we've managed to mostly smooth out these natural problems like chromatic aberrations and all these kind of things. But our lenses still have these ranges. And, you know, at, at wide open, it's good enough. And at fully stopped down, it's good enough. But in between, there's a point where it's like really nice. Yeah. Although to say that um, because I'm a film person, I'm from the days of film, we only had the problem on the on the low end. Like we didn't, you didn't really have um, diffraction so much on the high end because you were dealing with film, and the film couldn't resolve the 
Yeah, the grain, the grain would sort of put a limit on it, I guess. Right. The grain would, yeah, the grain of the film would put a limit on it, so you would never really see it. And plus, it's also grain is film is capturing light differently than sensors are, rather than little points. Um, it's a, a sort of an analog thing. So, yeah. But uh, yeah, this stuff always exists. But there's nothing wrong with your lens. So, um, but I think it's a useful thing to do when you're locked in the winter and you, you're like, well, you know, I got to f- learn this stuff. So. Yeah, because you need to know the limits so that you know that if I really need to push it, if I want to do something extreme like, you know, a particularly long or a particularly short exposure, I can do that. But it, knowing where the limits are is important, but also knowing where the camera is at its most comfortable is also important because yeah. if you stay in there, your pictures tend to be nicer. Yeah. Yeah. You'll have fun doing this. This is all a, it's all a good learning experience. And, and again, like I said, patience because it's not going to happen overnight. It's like going to school. And like you were mentioning something before. I was thinking, wow, you know, the back of the camera or the software in the camera is almost like a little bit of a photo school. Yeah, because so, it tells you what it's doing. You can see what it's doing. Right. And, it, you, you know, take a couple of minutes to look and say, why is it doing this and why is it doing that? And, and look at all the – there's so much information on the back of a screen these days that it is a photo class. You do have to interpret it. You know, you have to understand what you're looking at. But it's easy to find out that information, what it means. But – you know, taking a picture and saying, okay, it's too dark, and then you mm-hmm. see the histogram on it, it's like, oh, and then you take a picture, it's too light, and you look at the histogram, it's like, oh, now you know how to use a histogram, you know? And also that classroom extends into your photo editing app because your photo editing app will show you all the EXIF data. Yes. So if you start to find that, you know, these pictures don't look nice, and you start looking at the EXIF and you say, hang on, all the pictures that don't look nice have in common the fact that they shot at 128,000 ISO, and the ones that look nice have in common that they shot at 400 Ah, this whole high ISO thing is a problem for me. Okay, gotcha. The camera isn't good at this. I will avoid that. Right. Or you'll know when to use it. You'll avoid it, but you'll say, okay, well, there'll be a time when I, you know, it's better to get the picture and not worry about the quality so much, you know, because you're shooting, you know, an event or something like that. That's Yeah, when you're at the edges of what your camera can do, it will always be less good than when you're in its comfort spot. So you might know that "Ah, this ISO 128,000, it's not great. But on the other hand, if I don't use it, I I come home with zero photographs. (laughs) Yes. And and finally, remember, it's not you; it's the equipment. I mean, you are people who are listening to this or who are getting this stuff. We're all smart people. The it's the gear that we have to learn, and we have to make our sort of peace with it uh, to understand how to use it. So you, you'll you'll be going through frustration, but that's how you learn. So yeah. uh, I, I I would just say from the personal part of it, really take it easy. Uh, you know, there's tons of resources that you can you can find out from people about things. Uh, you know, you can always contact me. I know a lot about stuff. I, I open that door, <laughs> but I, you know, part of what we do is switch to manuals. You know, answer people's questions. So, yeah. um, and I guess you know, it, it, it is all about practice. But the more you practice, the other advantage of practicing is that things become automatic. So you don't think about your brain right. just goes, "I need this darker," and your body just twiddles the right buttons. But when the camera's new, that will not happen because it will be a two-step process. I want this darker. What menu was it again? Yeah. So I do this and then I do yeah. And so yeah. the more you practice with it, half of that equation falls away. And it just becomes about I want to do X and you just know how to do X because it's your gear. And that goes for lenses. I want to turn off the VR. I want to I want to focus it manually. They're all a little bit different. They all have their little knobs and switches and their little twiddly bits. And, you know, do I turn this? Do I pull that? And... The only way to get good with them is to practice using them and to the point where you're only thinking about what you're trying to control and not how to control it. So I guess it's like driving a car. You know, when you're starting off, a gear change is not, I should go to second. It's so I got to push this in and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. So you got to get beyond that. And there's only one way to do that. And that is practice. Practice. Yeah. And and stay warm, too, for those of us in the uh, northern (laughs) hemisphere. 
<laughs> warm and dry. Warm and dry is good. Yeah. Since we've started talking, uh, I think I've gotten like two more inches of snow on my window. So. Okay. <laughs> I hope you have all your shopping done and you don't have to be outside. I did. I bought bread and, and milk, which is what you're supposed to buy. I don't know why. Is it? Well, I suppose bread and milk. Everybody milk runs out and says, they're panicking. Bread, milk, and eggs. The shelves, pictures of the shelves are, you know, in the supermarkets, there's no bread. I don't know why people need bread. Bread is nice. I bought bread. But... Well, yeah, I bought bread because I want to make sandwiches, but, you know. Well, I guess if the power goes out, bread works. Whereas if you bought a pizza that it's frozen <laughs> and the power goes out, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I think it's just that people panic. But, yes, this is what we call winter. They gave the storm a name, and I think you just call it winter, but. Boy. Well, for yeah. the first time actually ever in Europe, we started naming our storms because people would ignore the weather forecasters who said things like, don't go outside today, it's really mm-hmm. dangerous. I just go, yeah, whatever. It's Ireland, it doesn't get bad here. But thanks to global warming and stuff, it does get bad here. Oh. And so we've started naming our storms and now people are getting into the habit, oh, this one has a name. Maybe I should listen. Maybe I shouldn't <laughs> go out on my sailboat. <laughs> It's stupid, but that's human psychology. So, you know, naming our storms has proven to be useful here. Okay, but that's an interesting thought. Now I'm thinking that people are – we're starting to name the storms here too. So maybe that's that's the reason. I think it's stupid, but okay. It's also people, a bit of fun, right? So Abigail, you know, oh, the terrible damage wrought by Abigail. And then here we're going male, female, male, female. So I was thinking Abigail and then Barney. Storm Barney was fun. I just had this vision of a dinosaur stomping. <laughs> you know, Barney wreaked havoc in the north of England. Oh. Anyway, I hope we got to what you wanted to talk about in the show. I mean, well, I, know I think we've. Got, I think. I think so. I think that you know, it's it's a very broad topic, so we can't possibly. Oh my gosh! It all. Yes, <laughs> but I think we got good content. So thank you very much for your time. And um, well, gosh, yeah, of course. So, listeners, there will be – actually, there probably won't be very detailed show notes. <laughs> I don't think there will be any show notes to mention, actually, for this particular show. There will be a note that says who it was. So you, you'll be able to get the links to all the places Antonio hangs out. Um, and you'll be able to listen along to the audio. So it's let's-talk.ie. And there will be big blue buttons where you can support the show. Uh, three buttons. One of them is to buy our branded gear on Zazzle. So, you know, polo shirts, which is much too cold for this time of year. Maybe I should do some sort of woolly jumper. Uh, but anyway, there is um, uh, branded gear, which helps the show twice. I get a small commission from Zazzle for you buying it. And then you're walking around advertising the show, which is always good. And uh, there's a plain old PayPal button. And then there's a Patreon link. And the way Patreon works is that you pledge a small amount of money per episode. And then assuming I get around to doing said episodes, then you get charged at the end of the month. And the Patreon is great because, uh, you know, I have some sort of idea what the income is going to be so I can make intelligent decisions on what to spend on hosting and so forth. So the Patreon supporters in particular, you guys absolutely rock because you make it possible for me to plan. And planning is, is useful to be able to do. Okay, Antonio, thank you very much for your time. So do you want to give people links to where they can find the stuff you do online? Yes, you can find me on Twitter most often at at amrosario. Uh, also on Flickr, I use AM Rosario as well. A- anywhere AM Rosario is, you'll find me. <laughs> so just do a search. And then um, I'm part of switchtomanual.com. Me and my uh, partner, Tom Martinez, who's been on the show. I'm going to get him yeah. on again. Yeah, well, mm. poor Tom has been moving, like, not just house, but, like, entire climate. Yeah, yeah. And and he just got engaged, too. Oh, uh, that's Yeah, funny. yeah. So he's been a little busy, but... Uh, yeah, we hang out at switchtomanual.com and we do our podcast, the Street Shots podcast. And uh, when I'm done with you today, I have to edit uh, a couple of shows because so, I'm a little behind. But we've had our holiday hiatus. So switch to manual slash podcasts. Uh, and then we're on Twitter at switch the number two manual. So switch to manual and Facebook and stuff. We're not on Google Plus anymore. We're, we're kind of 
Yeah. I'm drawing up on the Google side. And you guys also do portfolio reviews, I believe? We do, yeah. We're, we've got a portfolio review site uh, service where you can send your pictures and have the Switch Manual guys give you uh, some professional feedback. And we have three paid versions, but we also have a free 99, so you can give us a test. Yeah, see if you like their style. Yeah, and we've had a few. We've done. We just there's a new service that we're starting, but uh, we've had a few, and they've been fun. You get an audio review from from Tom or me. Excellent. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks. Okay. So I've been your host Bart Bouchas. You can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hey Siri, I'm looking for a new podcast. How about Three Geeky Ladies? Well, I want to hear about technology. As I said, Three Geeky Ladies. I want to learn about different types of apps and websites that will help me in my day-to-day life. Um, Three Geeky Ladies fits the bill. A podcast that talks about new releases in Apple, like iCloud, Photos, new iPhones, and iPads. Oh, and El Capitan is coming out soon, right? As I've been saying, Three Geeky Ladies is what you want. Say, what about the Three Geeky Ladies podcast? That looks like exactly what I want. Thanks, Siri. Wow, Three Geeky Ladies, a technology podcast from a female perspective. Find it on the Stoplight Network.